What I'm going to talk about today has really been a burden in, in, in my life for the last year. In fact, a year ago in February, I read a particular scripture that really put a big burden on me when I started to consider it. If you remember last year's vision, do you remember what our vision was? It was dream big, wasn't it? It was about dreaming big, and we talked about how the really that we're, we're, we're spiritually dreaming big and we're physically dreaming big too because we're dreaming about having a much bigger building, uh, a better building, being able to do greater things in the kingdom of God. And most of us have really caught that vision. We, as a church, we've caught the vision that we're going for something greater, and we've we've raised. We're, we're now into this. We're now in, entering into the third year of our three-year campaign for raising money for our church because uh, that's our commitment towards dreaming big. And I, I honestly, Crystal and I dreamed big last year. I wasn't dreaming as big as my wife, but you know what it's like when you're married to your wife and your wife dreams bigger than you and you kind of have to catch up, right? And all the men are going, yeah, I know. And all the women are like, mm-hmm, I told you, right? Uh, my wife dreamed big. She dreamed for a bigger house and I had dreamed not to be into any more debt uh, for having a bigger mortgage, right? That was my dream, but, but she had a bigger dream. And she had a bigger dream, and we actually had a board that we made up, and well, she made up a board, and she had pictures and, you know, stuff that was going to be on this house and in this house and stuff, and every day I went past the board, and I'm like, well, that's a God dream for sure, because there's no way I can make this happen, right? There's no way I can make this come to pass, and, and all the things she had dreamed in this house, and the funny thing is, the things that I had wanted in a house as well were partly opposite what she wanted as well, and I'm like, God, we're even in conflict in our dreams. Which one is it? That one's a dream and one's the nightmare, right? And so, and so we're, 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 we're still praying. We're saying, God, this is the year of the dream, and we're not demanding or commanding that it has to happen. We're just telling you, this is what our dream. And at the end of last year, it actually came to pass. Even the things that she wanted that I didn't want, and I wanted something opposite, somehow they matched up, and they seemed to both come to pass anyway. And it made me go, Wow, God, you are the God who is capable of fulfilling all the dreams that you have put within our hearts. They may not be dreams that come to pass straight away. They may not be dreams that come to pass in my schedule or on my time scale, but that's okay. It's not my dream. If I believe it's God's dreams, then I have to put it on his plate and say, these are yours. I still have to be about God's dreams. And so this year we were studying from the book of Joshua and we were studying from even the book of Judges too because we were talking about how Joshua and the Joshua generation that's considered one of the greatest generations in the Old Testament, they had a big dream of conquering the land of conquering, of moving over from the valley of, uh, moving over from the, the land of the desert and moving into the promised land that was gonna be filled with milk and honey. And we studied about how they had to conquer Jericho. And they spent the rest of their lives conquering the rest of the land that God said he wanted to give to them. And we took that as a template and a pattern for ourselves to say that we're gonna learn from the Joshua generation. We're gonna learn from their boldness and their confidence to take hold of the things that God has given us a dream for. Hello. We're looking to follow their pattern. And we were, we, were, we were given confidence, we were given encouragement that yes, we can live out the same confidence and boldness and faith that the generation of Joshua had. We can have the same faith as they did. 
until I came across one verse that disturbed me last February. And it's in Judges chapter two. And it says in Judges chapter two, verse six to 10, it says this. And after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. They went about taking hold of that which God was now giving them which was now manifesting based on the dream and the vision that God had given them for 40 years in the desert. Take hold of the land I'm about to give you. Continuing on, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen, had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Now listen, here's the verse that really disturbed me. It says this, after that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How is this possible? I thought about this, and I asked the question of, how is it possible that one of the greatest generations of seeing God move through them and in them, how is it they didn't pass on the same passion and the same knowledge and the same ability to walk with God to their children? How is that possible? For a whole year I've been asking this question, why is it possible for one generation to see God move in a mighty way but the next generation have no clue about it? What I started doing was I started examining myself of what am I doing? What am I about? Why am I here? What are we called to do? And so I started to study this of, God, you've given us a vision of, of conquering four different mountains, we call it base, business, art, social, and education. You've told us to go into the community and to do good works, to, to, to found the kingdom of God in the areas that we're in, in our jobs, in our communities, in our neighbors. And, and, and I started asking the question of, am I actually having any good? Am I doing any good? Am I doing great things and thinking I'm conquering the world, that I'm growing my business, I'm growing my family, I'm, I'm growing the wealth that I have in my life, but I've forgotten how to teach my children how to walk with God? Hello? Am I depending on children's church to show my children how to study the Bible? Am I depending on the youth leader to tell my kids how they should live out their life morally and sexually in purity? Or am I the one who's gonna sit down with my children and show them how to walk with God? Hello? Am I gonna show them how to speak with God every day? How to make the choices to listen to God first and not to react and respond emotionally to everything in life? I want my children to start hearing God now, not next year. Not, not when they're 20 years old. Not when they decide to get baptized and they decide to try and follow God. I want to show them how to walk with God now. Hello. What are your children seeing in you? How are they following you? Oh, Peter, I don't have children. 
Yeah, but there are people who are around you that look up to you like you're a spiritual parent. They're watching what you're doing. They're watching what you're instructing them to do. Someone had asked me this week, um, do, do you, how do you tell your children to fast? I said, I'll tell you how you tell your children to fast. You just say, I want you to fast. That's it. Yeah, but dad, are you telling me to fast? No, I'm telling you, I want you to fast. That's what I want you to do. But what if I don't want to fast? That's the power of free will. You can do whatever you want. This is not a command that you have to fast. I'm just telling you, I want you to fast. This is how we should communicate with the Father in heaven as well, where we say, God, what do you want me to do? Not what do I feel like. What, let's discuss this. Let's go over this and, and discuss and let's come to an agreement on what we think we should do or what I should do in my life. No, no, no. What do you want me to do and help me to be obedient to you? Help me to please you. That's the type of children, I, that's the type of child I want to be with the Father. That's the type of children I want to have with my life, with my fatherhood. I want them to ask, what do I want? Because I'm going to instruct them in good things. I'm going to instruct them on how to walk with God. So as I was studying this last year, I started to, I asked the question of who has done this then? Who is the, who is the, the people or the person who has actually walked with God in a way where they have shown how to actually demonstrate a life of spirituality for the next generation? <laughs> and I was drawn to the first church. And in reading in the, in the first church, there were, there were three specific things that I could see that the first church did. One of them, they were forced to do. The other two, they chose to do as well. And the three things that I looked at and I saw was the three words that I put up on the screen, which was gather, grow, and go. To gather, to grow, and to go. Yes, we're called to conquer the land. Yes, we're called to, to do great ministry in the community. But there is something that is foundationally more important than any good work that we could ever do for any land that we could ever conquer. It's to gather, it's to grow, and it's to go because that demonstrates to the next generation how to walk with God. So let's look at the first one here. The first one here is to gather. And I'm reading from Acts chapter one, verse 12 to 14. And it says this, the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. That's when they saw Jesus and Jesus ascended up into heaven. A Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. That's all the disciples. And it says, and they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In Acts chapter two, it continues on, and it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Acts 2 verse 46, it says, every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. What I saw here was a pattern of they made a commitment to meeting together. Now, it seems like maybe I'm preaching to the choir right here because we're all meeting together right now, aren't you? You're, you're physically here. You're literally here in this room and we're meeting together as a body of Christ. I can't stress to you enough the importance of the decision that you made today to meet together with your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
I can't stress to you enough the importance that you took the time to say that we should be put together in one room and we should meet together as a body of Christ. Why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. Because relationship and fellowship is the currency of the kingdom of God. Jesus said this, he said that where two or three are gathered together in my name, that's where I am. He didn't say that I'm gonna turn up when you're by yourself. There is no scripture that says that, believe it or not. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit doesn't turn up. But there is no scripture that says that Jesus himself turns up. He says where two or three or more are gathered together in my name, that's where I'm turning up. It's like he's the party animal. He's like, where's the party art? Because wherever that is, that's where I'm gonna go. That's where I'm gonna be. Are you having a party at your house? I'm there, right? This is essentially what it's like is that every Sunday morning we're making a decision to gather together and I realize it says that they met together every day in the temple courts. I don't necessarily think that's a command for frequency that we have to do this every day, but I think it's a command and a pattern of what we should do in order to live our lives out for Christ. What I find is those who don't choose to gather with other people in the name of the Lord don't sustain and grow their faith. They don't, it tends to wane. How do I know that? Because I've talked to them. I don't find that people walk away and walk alone and tend to get deeper with God. Very few people ever succeed at that. Where we do grow is when we are together and we are encouraging one another and we're receiving from one another. The second thing that I saw, the second pattern that I saw in the first church was this, it was that they grew. And it says in Acts chapter two, verse 42, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When they met together, they made a purposed decision to do certain things together. And there's four things we can see up here. The first one is it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What you fill your mind with is what you will fill your heart with. What your heart is filled with is what your desires are. What you fill your mind with is what you fill your thoughts with. If you fill your mind with junk news day in and day out about what the president is or isn't tweeting, let me tell you, you're gonna be filled with anger, frustration, or battle within your heart. That's not what God's called you to do. God has not called you to start becoming the, the opinionator of what he has got someone else doing. He has called you to fill your mind up with his things in your heart and in your mind. If you don't fill yourself up with teaching, with, with good teaching from the word of God, and it doesn't have to come from this pulpit, there's plenty podcasts out there, there's plenty stuff out there that when you fill yourself up, you fill yourself up with vision, you fill yourself up with confidence and boldness that yes, God does have a plan. He has a plan for my life. He has a plan for this city and I am not gonna be swayed by what other people say about the bad things that are happening in this world. Why? Because I know that my father is in charge of it all and he knows what he's doing. He doesn't need me to get worried or panicked about what's going on and they committed themselves to teaching every day. They committed themselves to fellowship. Why? Because fellowship, I believe, is where joy comes from. 
Now, there are many sources, the Bible says, of where joy comes from, but for every source that I could see, it was always when there was relationship, when there was communication, there was always communion, either between you and the Holy Spirit or you between you and other people. You see, I believe that joy is stolen through dysfunctional relationship. You see, the joy and the difficulties that I believe that you wrestle with, possibly from your past, is because your father wasn't a present father or because your mother wasn't emotionally there for you. Let me tell you, the type of people that I work with in counsel who are struggling in their life because their father wasn't around, and they'll say, you know, well, it's because, you know, he was a good man, he, he paid the bills and he worked hard, but he wasn't there for you. He wasn't in communication with you. He wasn't in communion with you. And that's why you're missing the tools in your life to make confident decisions in life. That's why you're missing the joy. That's why your marriage isn't gelling together because you don't know how to treat your mother. You don't know how to treat your wife because you never saw your father treating your mother in the right way either. Listen, the wrestles that you have every day can be overcome just by fellowship. It's just, just because I talk it out. Yeah, because when you're with good people, you're receiving good things. The things that you didn't receive from your mother or your father can be received from your brother and sister in Christ because they can speak the words that your father should have said to you. You've got what it takes. I was speaking with someone the other day and he said, he said, do you know what it's like when you don't know that it's okay to have your car break down? He said, when I was growing up, when the car broke down, it went into a panic because I never had my father tell me it's okay that the car should break down. It doesn't matter, we'll get it fixed. That's the type of confidence you receive when you're a child, that when, pan when problems come about, your parents tell you, don't worry about it, you'll be okay. But if your parents weren't there, there was no one to tell you that you should be okay. That's what fellowship is for. God has given us fellowship so that we can overcome the world, is what the Bible said. Are you following me so far? The, the third thing it says here is prayer. Of course, that is communion with God. A fellowship is communion with one another. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is when you are finding out the thoughts of God. And of course, the last one on this list is the sacraments. And we do this four times a year as a church that we remember that the cross of Christ is at the center of everything that we do. The third thing that I saw in, this, in, in Acts when I looked at the first church was the word go. Jesus said to them before, um, before he actually ascended up into heaven, the last thing that Jesus had said to them was this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? We all know that that's, the, well, that's what we call the Great Commission. We are called to take whatever God has given us and go tell someone else about it. The problem was the first church didn't actually end up doing it. If anything, I think this is partly the problem of what happened with the Joshua generation. They were so busy being about the business of doing good deeds that they forgot to tell how other people should walk with God too. And in, in, in Acts chapter eight, 
after they've done all this ministry and they've been meeting together and it says that God added to their number daily and it got to a point the church was 3,000 people and every day people were coming and I can't imagine how many people there were. It says that God decided to release a persecution upon the church and it says in Acts chapter eight, one to eight, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Is that not where Jesus said they should go. He said, go from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. He had just said that. And they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen. That was the guy who, after the, when the persecution first started, he was the first guy to be murdered. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, who would later become the apostle Paul, began to destroy the church going from house to house where they were meeting. He dragged them off, both men and women, and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered, listen now, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. I am not praying that our church should be scattered. It's not my desire. But I do believe that God will scatter you into places that you don't want to be in. You're not choosing the job that you're in. You're not choosing the client that you've got. You're not choosing the home that you're living in right now. You're not choosing the neighborhood that you're in. You're not choosing the vocation. You're there simply because that's the only opportunity that was open to you. You're not choosing the sickness that you have. You're not choosing the, 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 the shops or the surgeries or the doctor's offices that you have to walk into every other day because you've got physical problems. You're not choosing the places that you have to go to. That is the first church. They didn't choose to go to the ends of the earth, but God had called them to go to the ends of the earth. Hello. I believe that this, this, this soberness of this teaching is not only a rebuke to us, but an encouragement to us that God has great plans and he's still going to do it with or without us. And the places that you're ended up in today is for a reason. The places that you've been scattered to is because God has a plan for what you should do there. Now, you might be there thinking, I'm under persecution. I'm under difficulty. I can't get the things that God has called me to do. All the things I've dreamed of, God's not fulfilling them. And I'm stuck in this corner over here, in this job, in this neighborhood, in this house, in this family, in this sickness. I'm stuck over here in the corner when the fact is that God wanted to change it, he could do it any point he wants to. Why hasn't he changed it? I'll tell you why. Because he has a job for you to do in that scattered place. Hello. God has got a job for you to do in the places that he has scattered you to. So this morning, I want us to be reminded and to remember that this year, we're gonna put a focus on remembering to gather together. 
the importance of gathering together, to encourage each other. If you know someone who's not here today, who you're friends with, who hasn't chosen to gather together, I'm not looking for you to go to them and go, well, Pastor Peter said you were here, and if you're not here, well, you're in sin. That's not what we're looking to do. We're looking to encourage each other to remember why we're gathering together, why we give so much time to fellowshipping with each other and to studying the Word, because we're gonna remember what it is that God has called us to do, and that is to spread the Word, not only just to the ends of the earth, but especially to the next generation who is in this church already. We must remember the youth. We must remember the children. They should become our greatest mission field in our lives. If your calling you think is just to survive or just to kind of live out your life or try to do the best that you can in your life, guess what? Your next door neighbor's doing the exact same thing. There is no difference between you and them. The only difference between you and them is that you're making a concerted effort to make sure that the next generation is walking with God. Let us never allow Judges 2, verse 10, to be a description of our church, that the next generation didn't know the deeds of God and didn't know how to walk.